This morning we're going to begin a new part or new section of our sermon series that, that I've called Church Life. Now I did realize this week that I'm not very good or creative and when it comes to creating a sermon series or in communicating that sermon series to you. However, I will say at the beginning of January I decided I was going to do a series on church membership and a series on church leadership. And instead of having two separate series, I thought, hey, this will be a great idea. We'll have just one big series that we can call Church Life. Okay, so if you're lost, we are in the middle of a series called Church Life, and we've come to the end of our, our discussion, our focus on membership, having spent the last six weeks on membership. We're going to shift this week for the, for the next six or so weeks, um, looking at church leadership. Okay, so, so we're still under church life, but these are kind of the two heads that, that we have been addressing. And so, so now we're shifting to church leadership. And so this morning in the first sermon on church leadership, my aim is, is very straightforward. It's straightforward because any discussion on leadership within the church must begin with recognizing the leader of the church. Before we can look at any human role or human office or human responsibility within the church, we must recognize the one who stands above his church. And so this morning, I want to show you that Christ is the head of the church. Not only that, but Christ is the climax, the final installment of a pattern that has run throughout the history of God's people. Christ, as the head of the church, is the one with all authority and all power. He is in charge, the one who is leading his church. Christ is the leader the senior pastor of this church. It cannot, it must not be any way else. But more than that, it also means that Christ, as the head of this church, is also the example for which every church leader to follow. And so every church leader not only submits to Christ as, as their head, but also follows Christ as their example. And so in the coming weeks, we're going to look much more closely at the specific offices of leadership within the church. We'll look at qualifications for those offices. We'll look at function of those offices. But here at the beginning, we're going to set the proper foundation, which is Christ himself as the head of his church. Okay, so here's our outline for today. We're going to look first at the big picture of leadership. So we're going to kind of paint the big picture of God's leading his people throughout history. We're going to look at the pinnacle of God's leadership, which is Christ. Then we're going to look briefly at the pattern of leadership that's been set, the pattern that we're going to aim to follow as a New Testament church. So we'll see the big picture, the pinnacle, and then the pattern. And so before we start, let me, let me pray for our time. Um, so, so pray with me, if you will. Father, we are your people. We are those who've been purchased by the blood of your Son. And so we identify ourselves as redeemed men and women redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, who was slain and who is worthy of all honor and power and glory forever and ever. And so we honor Christ as Lord. We, we follow Christ as Lord. We worship Christ as Lord. We pray for the return of Christ as Lord. And I ask, Father, that we as a local church might always be faithful to him who is our head and our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, first, we'll look at the big picture of leadership. And so at the outset, I just want to give you kind of a, a flyover perspective of, of God's pattern of leading his people. 
And the reality is, and here's the big picture, God is and has always been the de facto leader of his people. God has always led his people. There's never been a time when God's people have not had a leader, a time when, when they've not been led. God's people have always, either directly or mediated through human agents, have always had God as their leader. This has always been the case, and this will always be the case. God leads his people. I mean, we could, we could track even further back, all the way to the beginning, and start with, with, with the basic fact that God as the creator has certain rights and privileges that, that belong to him. So these are the creator rights. So as the maker and creator of, of all people and of all things, he is owed our allegiance. Those are his creator rights. But I, I don't want to go that far back. I want to look specifically at God's leading of his people. Not, not generally in terms of creation, but specifically in terms of God's leading of a unique people. I'm going to do that in order to show that God has always led his people in a way that is distinct from how he leads all people. So, so God is the God of all people. That's true, but God leads his people uniquely. Okay, so, so God's people are unique in their call to follow the Lord as opposed to, to generally all people. Okay, so, so we're going to look at how God has specifically led his people. So the big picture starts in Eden where you have God creating and commanding the first couple, Adam and Eve. And so there in the Garden of Eden, we find God's people living in God's place under God's rule. That, that's a good equation. God's people living in God's place under God's rule. Everything is perfect in the Garden with Adam and Eve. But that experience, as you read in Genesis chapter 3, it's short-lived. Adam and Eve, instead of following and obeying their leader, their creator, instead they decide to follow another leader, a serpent, and the serpent calls them to be their own God. He calls them to rebel against their good and right leader. And so the first couple, they, they rebel. They don't follow their leader. And so God's unique relationship with this first couple, it's immediately altered. And so Adam and Eve's relationships, their experience of life, their experience of fellowship with God, it's all altered and affected because they refuse to follow their good leader. They, they refuse to obey God's lead. And so, so right from the beginning, it, it goes haywire. God's people don't follow God's leader. And then after Eden, we, we, we get to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and we're going to move fast, not because they're not important, but because our tour is time-constrained. And so we have to keep moving. But as we quickly drive past Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these patriarchs, we should note that God led them directly. We should note that, that God revealed his will to them, his plans for them. And, and so he, through dreams and visions, communicated with Abraham. He called him from the land of his father and said, go to a land I'm going to show you. And Abraham and his offspring, they stand forth as individuals who obey as people of faith, at least some of the time, right? Not all the time. I mean, the reality is, even though God leads them, although Although God, God leads them through dreams and visions, and even though he makes promises to them, and even though he specifically commands them, and even though he leads them as their God. Remember, he says, Abraham, I'm going to be your God. Though all those things are present, all of them, Abraham and, and following, they're all mixed bags of faith and unbelief. So they still can't follow, they can't trust their leader the way that they ought to. Despite the perfect leading from God himself, Abraham still takes the offspring problem into his own hands. 
And I, I, I don't trust God to provide. So, so I'm going I'm to go to Hagar. Isaac still lies about the identity of his wife because he's afraid. Jacob still laughs at young, at young Joseph's dreams. Remember, all of these, though they have the privileges, all the privileges of God leading them directly and specifically, they don't follow perfectly. And so they are similar in that vein to Adam and Eve before them. And they don't obey perfectly. Yet, and this is the amazing thing, as the story continues, God continues leading them. He continues to be their God. He remains uniquely identified with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Despite the frailty, despite the disobedience, despite the folly of his people, God remains faithful. The big picture of leadership then shifts with this massive growth of, of Jacob's family. And so Jacob has these, these sons, and, and, and the, the, the tribes explode, and they, they find refuge in Egypt, and they keep fruitfully multiplying over and over and over, and then they become a, a problem for Egypt. And so they, they get a new landlord in Egypt. They, they, there's a pharaoh that rises that doesn't know them, doesn't like them, and so he makes life for the Israelites miserable. And so you find this, this growing group of God's people who are identified as God's people who are now enslaved under Pharaoh, under this, this evil ruler, and their life is miserable. And it says that they cried out to their God. They cried out to him, and, and it says that God heard, and he saw. He's identified with these people. And so he call, they call to him, and he, he responds. And behold, he calls a leader to lead them, a deliverer to deliver them. And so up comes Moses in this line of leadership. And Moses leads God's people in what would be the most significant event in their entire history. He frees them from Egypt. He delivers them through the Red Sea. This is the exodus. And Moses is God's chosen instrument, his chosen leader. And Moses works mighty works. And even though Moses is a mighty leader, there's never any doubt that his power is from God. It's not Moses, it's God using Moses. God is the one who's mightily using Moses to lead his people. Right? They're not Moses' people, they're God's people, and he's using Moses to care for his people. But again, like with Adam and Eve, and like with Abraham and his descendants, God speaks directly to Moses, face to face even, on top of Sinai, so that his disposition changes and his face glows and so he is interacting with God as a friend, something that no other Israelite experiences, but Moses does. He's the mediator. He's the one, and God leads his people through Moses. God has uniquely identified himself with the Israelites. He is their God, and they are his people. But Moses doesn't enter into the promised land. He, like, like Abraham and like Adam and Eve, his unbelief, his sin prevents him from entering. And so as, as Moses has led the people through the wilderness a couple times and now they're, they're ready to go into the promised land. And God says, Moses, you can't go. The people are going to go, but Moses, you're not. But God doesn't send them in alone. He doesn't leave them without a leader. When Moses is gone, next rises Moses' assistant, Joshua. And so Joshua is now the leader. Again, it's God leading through these human mediators, these human instruments. And so Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land. Remember Joshua 1, there's these great promises. Be strong and courageous. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. Don't be afraid. Just like I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you, Joshua. And so Joshua leads 
the people into the promised land, into the land of Canaan. And after many battles and battles and victories, Joshua and the Israelites have, have rest from all their fighting. They are in the land and everything seems to be set for life after Joshua. When Joshua dies, the, the problems continue to emerge. And these tribes that, that Joshua has led into the land, they refuse to obey what Joshua had commanded them. They refused to obey the clear commands they had received from God regarding this promised land and how they were to occupy it. They don't obey. And all the fears and warnings that God had given to Israel long before they entered Canaan about intermingling with the pagan religions, with the other nations, they began to be realized these fears are cropping up. And the Israelites begin to lose their uniqueness. They're just like everyone else. Their God isn't special. They're worshiping all the other gods. And they forsake the prescribed worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have forsaken their Lord. And once Joshua dies, Israel just, just goes on a downward spiral of unfaithfulness. This is when, when the, the period of the judges begins. And when we come to the judges, remember, this, this is the truth to remember that even in the darkest days, God doesn't forsake his people. The time of the judges were, were a dark time for the people of God. Because as the judges come, there's this pattern that emerges, this cyclical pattern where, where the Israelites, they're, they're worshiping other gods, they're, they're forsaking their Lord, and then a judge comes up and, and judges them and is harsh, or, or another land, another nation invades and, and captures them, and they say, this is not good. And they call out, deliver us, Lord, save us. And then the Lord sends a judge to put down and to deliver them and to save them. So they say, okay, yes, we're your people. And then again, not long after, they forsake the Lord. And then they're taken over and they cry out, Lord, save us. And he raises up a judge to deliver them. And, and, and they, they do well for a while. Then, then they forsake the Lord. And then they're oppressed and they cry out, Lord, save us. And there's just this pattern of judges over and over and over. And what is amazing is that even in the midst of this rampant unfaithfulness, even in the midst of this, this futility, this, this indecision, even in the midst of this rebellion, in the midst of gross rebellion, remember Exodus 32, golden calf worship? Even in the midst of all of this idolatry, the Lord doesn't forsake his people. He doesn't. They are his people, his possession, his reputation is at stake. And God doesn't jump ship and start over. He doesn't forsake his people. That's not who he is. Instead, he continues, even through the judges, to lead his people through human mediators. Just like he pointed Joshua, just like he pointed judges. He continues to lead his people. After the judges came the rise of the kings, the monarchy established in Israel. And although Saul becomes the first of, of many kings in a long line, it was the one who comes after Saul that stood forth as, as the Moses-like figure. This is King David, the man after God's own heart, the man who was anointed by God to lead his people. And he does lead the Israelites well, and, and the rule expands, and God's kingdom seems to, to travel far and wide. And King David is a great leader who conquers and who, who expands and establishes God's kingdom. And so Israel, the, the, the capital city in Jerusalem, finally had a home for God's people. And so it seems as though here you have God's people in God's place, Jerusalem, under God's rule, which is seen through his king. It's as if David on the throne in Jerusalem was the pinnacle. It seemed like the kingdom has come until it was clear that it hadn't. 
Because David dies, and then his son becomes king, and his son seems to be even greater than David. This next king, the son of David, Solomon, was wiser and richer than anyone else in the world had ever been. And so here's this, this mighty king who follows David. And though Solomon, even though he appeared or seemed to solidify the rule of his father, Solomon had his weaknesses. Solomon had clay feet, and he fell prey to the very things that those under Joshua fell prey to in the promised land. Solomon was led astray to other gods, and Solomon forsook the one true God. And after Solomon dies, everything begins to fall apart. It it begins to crumble. The kingdom divides. There's now a north and a south, and the monarchy becomes this unpredictable cycle of of good and evil kings. You don't know who you're going to get. In fact, there's many more evil kings than good kings who are ruling in in these two kingdoms, in the north and the south, in in Israel and in Judah. And this monarchy, which was established and had potential to be good and beneficial for the people of God, becomes a disaster. And so the monarchy and the kings and their families, it becomes a source of fighting and war and scheming and idol worship, which leads to, to a final transition in this big picture, which is a transition from the kings to the prophets. And so while, while God doesn't totally forsake the office of king, he begins leading his people primarily through the prophets, most of whom are sent to his people to proclaim warning and danger and to tell of, of the folly of idolatry and to call God's people to return to him. So that this is the function of these prophets, return, return. And of course, most of these prophets are not well received. These messages of repentance are, are, are scorned. And the, the prophets are treated poorly and persecuted and killed. The monarchy in, in Israel has forsaken its purpose. And even though God continued to lead his people through his mouthpieces, which were the prophets, the Israelites had by and large forsaken their God. They'd forsaken the covenant. They turned from the God of Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua They no longer cared. They'd forsaken him. And it appeared as though God had gone silent. But here's the point. Here's the point of this whole big picture. God doesn't forsake his people. God doesn't forget his people. God never remains silent. In fact, quite the opposite. We see this entire storyline was leading up to this moment, this silence that would not last long, but would be broken by God himself. God himself was was about to step onto the scene and into the picture, taking on the mantle of leadership that no one else could faithfully and consistently bear. And God himself would come, not just as another Adam, not just as another Moses, not just as another David, not as another any of those. Instead, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son, the Word who was with God and the word who was God, he would become flesh. He would become a person just like you and me. And he would come into this world, into this, this leadership pipeline, if you will, as the better Adam and the better Moses and the better David. He would come as the perfect mediator, the one who could lead his people to permanent rest, to permanent peace, to permanent fellowship with God. He would come as the leader par excellence. And that leader, the one who would break the silence, was Christ himself. The one towards whom all other leaders 
were pointing. He comes as the substance. And everyone before was just a shadow. Adam, Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, all like shadows pointing to the coming of the one. The son of God who would come as the pinnacle of this leadership. And so that leads to our second point, the pinnacle. The pinnacle of leadership. It's all leading to the climax. Jesus is that climax, the pinnacle of the leadership plan in God. It is to him and to his rule that every other leader in the big picture was pointing. No prior leader can hold a candle to Christ, and no future leader will ever compare to Christ. It is all about Christ. It is only under the rule of Christ that God's people can dwell in God's place forever. And, and just as a footnote, we're still awaiting that. We're, we're kind of there, but we're not fully there yet. We're awaiting. There's a day coming when God's people will dwell in God's place with God under his rule forever perfectly. That's the new heavens, that's the new earth. That, that's the, the salvation that we're longing for. We're waiting for it to be accomplished. And so, and so you should know, if you're here, you're not a Christian, there is a day coming when Christ will dwell with his people and all other people will be cast out and will suffer for eternity. You're either with Christ or you're not. And when that day comes, you have to have made your decision. That day's still coming. And so if you're here, you're not identified with Christ. You haven't put your faith in him. Now's your day. We don't know when he's coming back, but we know he is. And when he does, your, your chance is, is over. We don't want you to be cast out. We want you to be with Christ forever under his rule. We, we will experience life as we were intended to. Maybe you've had a, a, a crummy life. This isn't all there is. This life can't satisfy. We were made to live with him under his perfect rule and reign forever. And that day's coming with Christ when he comes a second time. When Jesus comes the first time, part of what he comes to do in this whole line, this whole timeline of leadership, is he comes to establish a, a new covenant. Jesus comes to create a new people. And this new people will, will be marked by a new heart. And, and, and his new people have new hearts that are created to love him. And follow him. Christ comes to establish a new people marked by their allegiance to him. A new people who are united to him and to one another in, in one body. And so Christ's new people are characterized by their allegiance to Christ. Their faith in Christ. That's what unites the people of God. The new covenant people are united in Christ himself. He is the identifier of this new people. So after his life, death, and resurrection... Physical descent is no longer an accurate sign of membership in God's people. You need to hear that. It doesn't matter your, your genetics, who you descended from. Instead, instead of being marked as, as physical descendants of Abraham, the people of God are associated with or identified by their, Abra their, their spiritual relationship to Abraham. So that my people, Jesus would say, Abraham's true offspring are those who are, are joined to me by faith. And so this new people, they are marked and characterized by faith. 
It all has to do with what Jesus comes to do. And so, so when Jesus comes to create this new people, his people believe that he has come from the Father. We believe that, that he came to lay down his life as a ransom, as a payment for the sins of many. We believe that he came and, and has the ability to forgive sins and to grant eternal life. We believe that, that he came and he cares for his sheep and will provide for all their needs. These are marks of the people of God. It is all faith. In Christ that unifies the people of God. And that is the whole, the creation of this people is why Jesus came. And in fact, when Jesus comes, he, he actually looks back and says, it never was about your Jewishness. It was always faith. But the result of Jesus' death and resurrection is the ushering in of a new stage in the lives of God's people. God's people are those who are recipients of his spirit as a result of faith in him. Those who are indwelt by the spirit himself. In this new covenant people, as we have received the Spirit of God, if, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you've received His Spirit. His Spirit lives in you, and the Spirit has been given to you for the express purpose of keeping you, of ensuring your faithfulness, of ensuring your perseverance till the end, to, to guarantee that you're going to finish your race, which is something, as we saw, no one else could do. No other leader could fix the human heart problem, but Jesus does. He saves us from ourselves, and, and he gives our lives new purpose. He, he causes us to be born again by his Spirit, so that we're, not, we're no longer old, but we're new. We're part of this new creation. And as his new people, we live under the rule of Christ, and our lives are committed to following Christ. We live under his lordship. I mean, this is what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is a Christian because of his or her relationship to Jesus. A Christian is someone who's turned from their sin and has turned to Christ, or has turned from sin and trusted in Christ, put their faith in Christ. A Christian is someone whose sins have been forgiven, not because they're good, not because they're baptized, not because they joined a church, but because they've put their faith in Jesus, the only way to forgiveness of sins. And a Christian is someone who's received the Spirit of Christ and whose life is marked by submission to Christ as their head. Christians follow Christ. And so if you're, you're here this morning, I imagine there are some of you out there who are Christians. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, hear me say, your life has been given to you, your new life has been given to you for the explicit purpose of loving and honoring and following Christ. That, that's why you exist. That's why you've been forgiven. That's why you've been given eternal life. So that you might love Jesus now and forever. And so Christian, you are called to follow him. That's what Christians do. We must become less. He must become greater. We become less. He becomes greater. And this lordship of Christ over every Christian is what extends into the arena of the church. The lordship of Christ over every Christian is why, as the church comes together and individual Christians join together, of course Christ is the head of the church. He's the head of every Christian. So when Christians come together, he's the head of the church, which, by the way, is why churches are made up only of Christians. You can't have non-Christians joining together under the headship of Christ. If they're not under the headship of Christ in a personal life, how can they expect to be under the headship of Christ in a corporate life? It doesn't work. So that's why we, we hold to a re regenerate membership here. We, we want to, to do our best to ensure that everyone who joins with us 
is a Christian. Because the church is for Christians. Of course we want non-Christians to come. If you're, not here, or if you're here and not a Christian, I'm glad that you're here. I hope you keep coming. I hope you keep coming. But, but I hope eventually that you become a Christian. And you want to join our church and become part of our church. So as we have one local body here who have come together under the headship of Christ, his headship exists to every individual member. And so as we enter back into our discussion of leadership in the church, there should never be any question as to who is in charge of the church. There's no question. The only right answer always and ever is Jesus. He's the head of this church. It's not your church. It's not my church. This is Christ's church. And it's only within his hands that we are safe. It is Christ's church. He is the head. The leader of Fox Hill Road Baptist Church is the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that is done in this church and by this church and through this church ought to be done in and by and through Christ, who is our head. Whether it's leadership decisions, membership conversations, ministry discussions, all of these ought to take place within the context of submission to and obedience to Christ. That's how we are to function. Which requires, now here's the connection, if we want our church to obey Christ, we must be filled with members who are seeking to obey Christ. We'll never obey Christ as a church if we're not obeying Him as individual members of it. Which is why we spent six weeks on membership. We want meaningful membership. We want to hold each other accountable. We want to encourage one another. We want to care for one another. We want there to be genuine relationships within the body of Christ because we need one another to walk this walk as Christians in this fallen world. And so we seek to obey Christ personally. We seek to obey Christ, help others obey Christ. And then corporately as a church, we will begin to see obedience to Christ as a church. But we can never have a church that obeys Christ if we're not filled with members who obey Christ. And so if you see a problem with our church, look in the mirror first. That's always the right impulse, myself included. Every leader of every, the leader of every member of Fox Hill Road Baptist Church must be Christ. So churches submitted to Christ are comprised of members who are submitted to Christ. This is simple, but it's easy to miss. So we want to follow Christ. He is the head of his church, which leads finally to our third point, the pattern of leadership. So having established that Christ is the head of every Christian and the head of every local church, this one included, we can now move to discuss some of the specifics of how he leads. And so, so, okay, we've established Christ is the head of the church. Well, well, how does that work itself out? How does he lead his church? The reality is, even though Christ is not physically present, as in his physical body is not here now, right? his body's in heaven, even when we have the Lord's Supper, right? his presence isn't physically there, the body or the bread doesn't turn to the body. His body is in heaven, right? And will be until it comes, till he comes back again. So his physical body isn't here, but Christ is still the head, and Christ still is the one with authority and power, and he still exercises his authority through appointed means. And so he leads this church still through means. And so the three primary means that, that I just want to point to is his spirit, number one, his word, number two, and his people, number three. These are, these are how Christ exercises his authority. So his spirit is what is, what is guiding every individual member of the church, and, and that same spirit is going to lead the church in unity. 
His word is, is what he's given to us. He's spoken. It's the final word that points to Christ. So his word is, is, is the source of authority, but also his people. And so for our purposes, we're going to skip the first two, the, the spirit and the word, and focus on the third way, which is through his people. And so as the head of the church, Christ appoints leaders within the church. And these leaders serve under Christ. So, so leaders within the church serve as his representatives in the church. So, so they manifest his presence in the church for his people as shepherds or as servants. And just as when God appointed leaders in the Old Testament, whether it's a prophet or a king, the job of that person was to lead in God's stead. And so now any and every leader in the church under the headship of Christ is to lead in Christ's stead, to be his representative. Regardless of what position you have, you are called to represent Christ in this body. Which means that every member, every leader in every local church, or at least every local church that's seeking to be faithful to his purpose, ought to be undeniably Christ-centered. This is why I prayed what I did earlier in our prayer. There ought not to be any question as to what our church cares about. People driving by ought not to wonder, well, I wonder, I love bluegrass, but I don't want them driving by and say, oh, that's the bluegrass church. I don't want that to be. I don't, oh, that's a church with a nice sign. Or that's a church with that family life center. Or that's a church we park at to, to go to, to baseball practice. I don't want any of those to be what we're primarily known for in our community. I want us to be Christ's church, known for the gospel. That, those are the people who love Jesus. Those are the people who are always telling me and talking about Jesus. Those are the people whose love for Jesus is always seen in the way to relate to one another and they relate to us in the, in the neighborhood. I want us to be known about Christ and about his gospel. That's the purpose of my life as a Christian. That's the purpose of your life as a Christian. That's the purpose of our church. We exist. We are a product. We are a creation of the gospel of Christ. We have been formed by the gospel. And we exist for that gospel. So that's what I want us as a church to be. And so as we... As a church, so as we move into these next couple weeks, as we close here, I want to introduce you to a diagram that we're going to be, be looking at these next couple weeks. Okay, we're not going to say much about it now, but, it, but I just want to show you this diagram so you can be, be processing, visually looking at it, thinking through these areas of leadership in the coming weeks. So first we have Christ as the head of the church. So you see that, that box? That's Christ. He is the head of the church, the top of the di- diagram. We've already covered that. But second, under Christ is the congregation. Okay, this, this is the highest level of authority underneath Christ. This is one of the, the unique aspects of Baptist church life or of congregational church polity. That the congregation is placed directly under Christ because, now follow me, every member is a follower of Christ. Every member has been given the Holy Spirit. Every member is equipped by God for life and ministry. Every member has equal access to God through Christ. There's no intermediary between the congregation and Christ. The congregation belongs to Christ. They are His. So so there's no one in between. The congregation is right under Christ. It is central to the life of the church. And I think that's the the biblical model. We're going to look at this next week, at the congregation. That's why I'm Baptist. I'm not Baptist because I grew up in a Baptist church. I'm Baptist because I believe that's what the New Testament teaches. I think the New Testament puts... The emphasis on the congregation. And the congregation under Christ is the group with final authority. Like I said, we'll say more about this next week. But, but so the, the next 
slide, there's arrows coming down from the congregation. And these arrows are going to point to two other offices. And these, these arrows pointing down show that there's authority of the congregation over these two offices. And the two offices are, down to the left, we have the elders. And down to the right, there are the deacons. Okay, so these are, these are two offices. Now, elders could be pastors or shepherds or overseers. They're, they're all terms used interchangeably. But that's the first office. And then deacons is the second office. Now, there's extra arrows that, that are going from the elders to the congregation and then from the elders to the, to the deacons. We won't talk about them much now. They simply show that the elders or the pastors have authority to lead both the congregation and the deacons. Right? So the congregation has authority over the elders, but the elders are called to lead. That's why there's two arrows there. Again, we'll talk about this in several weeks. And the elders are responsible for leading the deacons. Now, the deacons have no arrows coming from them because they don't have authority as officers. They are simply there to serve both the, both the congregation and the elders. Like I said, we'll, we'll talk about this more in coming weeks. But th- this, is, this is the pattern, I think, of New Testament leadership. And so, so next week I have this in a printout for you to t- take home and color and, and make notes on. But this is what we're going to be looking at for the next five weeks, Lord willing. But this is the pattern that I believe has been set for us. And this is the pattern of leadership that, that I'm going to, to encourage us to follow. But to close here, I just want to leave you with, with Colossians 1. Right? I want to leave us. I don't want you leaving here without being reminded afresh of who is the head of our church. Because Christ is is the head. And so listen as I read Colossians 1, 15 through 20. This is Paul talking about Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." Christ is the head of the church. He's the Lord of this church, the one with all power and authority, and he is the one whom we follow. And so as we seek to follow him as a church, let us, as individual members, aim to follow him individually, asking God to lead us corporately. Let's pray as we close.